Welcome to Sidactic, Residency Edition, your podcast resource to survive and thrive in your psych residency. I am Dr. O'Leary, and as of this recording, I am a second-year resident in the National Capital Consortium Psychiatry Residency Program. However, make no mistake, I do not speak for this program, nor do I speak for the Department of Defense or the federal government or anyone else for that matter. What I say is my opinion and I reserve the right to be wrong. So trust me at your own risk. It's a risk some are willing to take. In the last episode, I gave a brief discussion about how ECT works by causing convulsive seizures and discussed some of the proposed mechanisms by which the seizure might result in benefit. Today, I want to discuss who you should consider sending for ECT some of the considerations for different patient populations, and how you might approach explaining to a patient that you want to electrify their skull and make them seize. There are patient presentations that should make you think, let's shock some heads. ECT is often talked about as a last-ditch effort, but there are many patients for whom ECT should be the first, second, or third treatment tried. Think patients who aren't able to care for themselves. For example, patients who are catatonic or have a large burden of neurovegetative symptoms from depression are likely to benefit much more quickly from ECT than starting or increasing medications. Let's take the case of catatonia. Catatonia is a type of brain failure that is similar to delirium in that it requires a broad differential and treatment focused on fixing the cause. So let's fast forward and say you've treated the suspected cause of a patient's catatonia or ruled out a lot of things like toxins, medication side effects, strokes, seizures, and the many infectious or autoimmune encephalitides. Then you tried IV benzodiazepines like lorazepam. Benzos can produce profound and immediate results, but not all patients respond to these medications, and it can become apparent within a few minutes if they're going to have any effect at all. It's amazing to see patients emerge from a statuesque state into friendly conversation, like watching a gargoyle emerge from its magical sleep as the sun sets. Other patients with catatonia might have only a partial response to their benzos, requiring escalated doses without sustained benefits. These patients should try ECT, and please don't wait until their BMI is 17%. Shock some heads. For another group of patients who are not doing the things they need to do to stay alive, like eating, sleeping, and moving around, ECT should be near the top of your list. These include your majorly depressed patients with neurovegetative symptoms, things like anorexia, psychomotor retardation, and insomnia. We think of the symptoms of depression and other psychotic disorders as subjective, but weight loss, hours of sleep, and the speed and amount of movement are objective signs of illness. 
these patients are not going to be able to outthink their symptoms with cognitive behavioral therapy as their mild to moderately depressed peers might. And they do not have time to wait weeks for a trial of medication that has a two-third chance of not working. Talk to them or their family about ECT right away. Another group of depressed patients for whom ECT may be a first-line treatment are pregnant or postpartum mothers. Mom needs to be able to care for herself and her infant. Failure to do so can result in failure to thrive or even death of the infant and similar poor outcomes for the mother. We hear stories of depressed mothers drowning infants in the bathtub when experiencing an effective psychosis, but this is rare. What is more common is a mother who fails to establish the kind of bond and caring relationship that sets her baby up for success in life. Mothers suffering from depression may also be fearful of taking medications every day that might affect her fetus or pass through her breast milk. ECT is here to help. ECT is broadly effective in affective disorders. It can treat depression with psychotic features and can also help break mania, especially if patients are extremely unsafe or suicidal. And along with medications, it can be used in maintenance of depression, bipolar, or schizoaffective disorder. Another group that would benefit from not waiting for ECT are those with neuroleptic malignant syndrome or malignant catatonia. Both are characterized by hyperthermia and muscle rigidity and can result in death. The main difference between NMS and malignant catatonia is that the former is caused by the use of psychotropic medication, neuroleptics, and the latter is caused by, well, something else. But they are clinically often indistinguishable, and luckily, both are responsive to ECT. It should not be withheld or postponed if pharmacotherapy is not working. Aside from urgency, another time you should consider using ECT first is if ECT has been effective before and the patient wants it again. Why force your patient to trial medications first if there is a track record of a good response to ECT? And then there's also no reason why you can't do both. So I've discussed a bunch of times when ECT should be at or near the top of your list of treatments. But from my experience, medical students, residents, and many practicing physicians do not think of ECT this way. The most common response to who should get ECT is likely to be someone who has failed all other medical treatment options. But this just isn't the case. ECT is the first or second line treatment in a number of conditions and should be more broadly available than it is. However, ECT can also be a last-ditch effort, so to speak, and should be offered to patients who have less urgent needs but have had adequate trials of pharmacotherapy or psychotherapy and have not significantly improved. Twelve weeks of ineffective treatment with adequate doses of any two antidepressants should prompt a conversation about ECT. 
In my own very limited experience, I've noticed that ECT is not really recommended to patients as often as it should be. A conversation about ECT is often ignored, and instead patients may be recommended transcranial magnetic stimulation of the brain, or TMS for short, which, although safe, is not currently, at least, nearly as effective as ECT. Patients also may prefer to try ketamine infusions or esketamine under the assumption that it is safer than ECT, but I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that this is actually true. And post-marketing studies are revealing that these medications may have previously underreported side effects and overreported benefits. ECT can also be used in status epilepticus refractory to medication treatment. This is interesting because inducing seizures can also cause status epilepticus, especially if used in patients with seizure disorders who have stopped taking their anti-epileptic medications. But there are case series and many other personal reports that ECT is able to interrupt refractory status epilepticus. If available and drugs are not working, it is indicated. There are no absolute contraindications for ECT. There is no age limit. There are no comorbid diseases that would absolutely prevent ECT in patients that need it. I mean, it it may be that a patient should receive other stabilizing medical treatment prior to ECT. For example, a patient in a car accident on the way to the hospital for an ECT appointment who needs surgery should get their surgery first. But Just because there are no absolute contraindications for ECT doesn't mean that every patient is an ideal candidate. And some patients inherently have more risk than others while undergoing the procedure. When evaluating a patient, their personal risk is modified by their comorbid conditions, treatment adherence, and some special considerations I'll touch on briefly. ECT requires brief paralysis and anesthesia, often with succinylcholine and methohexital, but other agents can be used. ECT is usually followed by a period of tachycardia and relative hypertension, so cardiovascular diseases can increase risk. Bradycardia is also a possible outcome. Care should be taken that patients are adherent to their treatments and medications for comorbid diseases to lower overall risk of cardiovascular events, which is low, even with implanted devices. In a case series of patients encompassing courses of ECT with 26 pacemakers and three implanted defibrillators, there was only a single serious event characterized as non-sustained supraventricular tachycardia. Patients may also have conditions like asthma, and there is a risk of bronchospasm and status asthmaticus following ECT. Patients may have kidney or liver failure, which needs special consideration for medication dosings. Patients with diabetes need special care to manage their blood glucose, especially since there is a need to avoid oral intake prior to the procedure. 
Most medications should be continued prior to ECT, especially if they have gastroesophageal reflux. There are some medications that can interfere with the seizure, such as anti-epileptic drugs or drugs used to interrupt a seizure, like benzodiazepines. But in general, a good rule of thumb is try ECT with these medications in place first, and if seizures are difficult to elicit, experts can try lowering doses or reversing the effects temporarily. For example, with flumazenil a few minutes before the procedure for a patient taking benzodiazepines. There is a low chance of bleeding with ECT, and bite blocks are used to help prevent cheek or tongue biting or breaking teeth. Patients on anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy should have a thorough risk-benefit analysis conducted with their internist or specialist to determine the best course of action. So here is a, a good spot to transition into formulating a consent process for your patient. I call it a process because there are multiple levels of consent. The consent I'm talking about here is the consent to start the evaluation for ECT. Because ECT's reputation precedes it and distorts it, this begs for a thorough yet understandable discussion with the patient, even more so than you would expect for a similarly minor procedure. ECT is not experimental. It has proven itself over the past hundred years and has been developed to avoid unnecessary complications. What you need to focus on are the indications for treatment, the expected or desired outcomes, the risk versus the benefits, and a discussion of alternatives which often have already been tried. The consent I'm going to model is one I would give in the office or psychiatric inpatient ward prior to referring for the procedure. Other consents will follow, but this is the initial go at it in order to establish that elusive therapeutic alliance. I will assume for the sake of time the patient has capacity to understand and decide between ECT and alternatives, including no treatment at all. ECT is often performed on acutely ill patients in the hospital, so if the patient lacks current decision-making capacity, then a surrogate should be found according to your local laws and policies. I will also assume the patient is voluntarily participating and not coerced. Here, I'm going to use the term your condition as a placeholder for any number of indications. I'll call the patient Ms. Wilder. Ms. Wilder, I would like to recommend electroconvulsive therapy or ECT for short to you in order to treat your condition, the symptoms of which include, and here you would fill in the blank specific for your patient. And these symptoms represent a heavy burden in your life. Without treatment, I would expect that your symptoms will continue or even worsen over time. I strongly feel the treatment necessary and the best treatment is ECT. In short, ECT is a procedure in which we cause a seizure in your brain in order to stimulate your brain to change in ways that we don't fully understand. ECT has been used for about a hundred years and has been found to be an excellent and safe treatment for your condition. 
In the vast majority of patients, ECT results in substantial improvement or remission, which we define as a reduction of your symptoms to a level that allows you to function in a similar way you were able to before this condition developed. It is not a cure, and in many cases, patients still need to use medications or have ECT at less frequent intervals in the future. ECT requires placing you under a brief anesthesia, which artificially puts you in a sleep-like state so that you are not conscious during the procedure. We also give medications that cause your muscles to relax and prevent them from contracting for a period of time. We will give you oxygen before the procedure and during the procedure and aid your breathing with a mask. We also place stickers and electrodes on your head so we can monitor your brain activity. When you are asleep and relaxed, we apply a controlled amount of electricity to your head. This causes a seizure, which we can see as spikes of electrical activity through a large portion of your brain. This electrical activity is expected to last from about 30 seconds to around two minutes. A few minutes later, you'll wake up and recover in our post-anesthesia unit. You will be able to go home the same day, but you will need someone to drive you. It usually takes between 6 and 12 sessions for patients to report noticeable improvements, but rarely improvements can be seen after one or two treatments. One of the effects of ECT is to temporarily increase your heart rate and your blood pressure but the risk of any serious events from this is very low. If your blood pressure becomes very high, we may need to give you medications to lower it, but this is done in a small minority of patients. The most recent studies estimate the risk of death from ECT is less than one per 100,000 treatments, making ECT one of the safest procedures performed under general anesthesia. It is also possible that you can bite your tongue or cheek or that you might break a tooth during the procedure, so we apply a bite block to your mouth to prevent this. You will need to eat nothing overnight before the procedure to reduce the risk of aspiration, which is breathing in fluids or food particles into your lungs, which might cause a pneumonia. The most common things people complain about after ECT is a headache, nausea, some muscle aches, and concentration or memory issues. These all tend to resolve within minutes to hours following the procedure, but you should not be making any important decisions within 24 hours of receiving ECT, and if possible, postpone decisions like these for a week. Some people report that memory issues continue for a few days to weeks after the procedure. Studies have shown that while your memories around the time you get the procedure may be compromised, your long-term memories remain intact. Bilateral ECT, where the electrical leads are placed on your temples, tend to result in more memory and word-finding issues. ECT focused only on the right side of your head reduces these complaints. The type of ECT you will receive is, and here you will fill in the blank. I'm going to pause for a second. For most patients, 
alternatives to ECT have already been tried, and that's why they are starting ECT. But there will be patients for whom you think waiting for medications to be effective is not the right course of action. So you could approach the issue like this. I'll take the case of a severely depressed patient. You might say, I think you could benefit from taking antidepressants. These medications are safe. Your chances, though, of benefiting from these medications within six weeks is only about one in three. I think the risk of waiting for a trial of these medications is higher than the risk of ECT because, and then here you would insert the patient's specific concerns, and then always ask, do you have any concerns I can address about doing ECT as opposed to trying medications? In this episode, I tried to establish that ECT is, in fact, a first-line treatment for many seriously mentally ill patients. It is a treatment of last resort for patients that have already tried a lot of other things that haven't worked, but it should not be thought of only as a treatment for treatment-resistant conditions. It's a great treatment for severe depression, catatonia, NMS, mania, etc., Also, there are no absolute contraindications for its use, though each patient should have a thorough medical evaluation to identify areas of specific risk. Finally, informed consent for ECT is a process that starts by exposing it to the patient as a safe and effective treatment so the patient does not decline simply based on fear inculcated into them by a fearful society. We've reached the conclusion of this series on ECT, and to tell you the truth, I think I've done a very inadequate job of covering everything. But I think I've done a decent job of explaining what ECT is and what it can be used for, and then had some fun talking about the history of ECT. What I encourage the listener to do uh, is to engage the literature now, Um, having this primer on ECT already. Maybe find ways you think that I'm wrong. There is also so many more details about ECT and questions that people will have that I did not get a chance to answer here. So I'm going to end this series and start something new. I really appreciate your patience as I develop Sidactic as a resource tool for residents and even med students uh, who want a little bit more advanced content. So thank you very much for your time. And this has been an episode of Sidactic Residency Edition.